Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the Read All About It podcast. My guest today, and indeed the very first guest on this podcast, is the writer Chris Dolan. Now Chris is a man of many writing talents. He's written several novels, including the first two books in a crime series featuring Glasgow lawyer Maddie Shannon, and the novella Aaliyah, which in my humble opinion is a stunning and beautiful piece of literature. You should all read it. There have also been short story collections, a number of non-fiction books, plays for theatre, radio, TV and film in English and Spanish. He has adapted numerous novels for radio broadcasts, written screenplays for TV documentaries and all with a sprinkling of awards that are testament to those writing talents. And as if that is not enough, Chris is also a lecturer on Glasgow Caledonian University's prestigious master's course in TV fiction writing. Quite how he also manages to fit anything else into his life is beyond me, but he does, including lengthy cycle trips, and he completed a near 1,000-mile trek across Spain in the summer. Chris, thanks for joining us on the very first Read All About It podcast. Thanks, Paul. I want to meet that guy. (laughs) (laughs) You do realise that you are my Neil Armstrong, who's the first man to set foot on this podcast. (laughs) A great leap. Well, let's hope for a great leap. Now, in the course of this, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, thousand mile cycle and how it relates to your writing. But when I was just putting together what is a very short summary of a very impressive writing career, and I mentioned you, you write across a whole variety of different platforms, is it possible for you to say, do you have a particular favourite, or is it just as long as you're writing, whether it's a novel for radio, for stage, that's when you're happiest? Yeah, I can actually. I like, I like writing books. Um, if I had to choose, if, if if you're, you're told you can only write one thing, uh, it would be books. Um, I love, I've really enjoyed doing telly, I've really enjoyed doing theatre. Uh, and I'm, I'm loving, I'm working with David Heyman just now on a series of one-man plays, and that's brilliant fun. He's a pal, and there are plays about things we're passionate about, so uh, and that's great. Um, but yeah, there's something about just me and you, you know yourself because you're a novelist too, that just sitting in a room by yourself, just writing and imagining, and I love all that. I love all the collaboration of the other forms, but the novel was the one that I think I really, I think I, I really like best. And I suppose this podcast is kind of celebrating books, and it's taking you on a, a literary journey of your life back from childhood right through to now. And you know, when you started reading, when you started reading books as a youngster, it was always in your head that you think I'd love to do that. I'd love to write my own books. Sadly, yes. Um, I'm cla- it's funny, I was, years and years ago, one of, the, one of the first kind of readings I did in public was uh, with famous people. Um, years ago, it was in, it was in uh, Glasgow University, as I remember. Uh, anyway, there was a panel of people, and I, and I was on it. Uh, and was, I remember Liz Lockhead being there, and I, I can't remember who else, but it was well, well-quoted writers. And I was at the, the far end of the panel, so a, a question was asked at the beginning, which was, why did you start writing? Um, and they went through about six people before it came to me. By the time they got to me, they'd all given the same answer. Um, I was a sick kid. They'd all been sick kids. There's something about being a sick kid that you're just fed boots because your parents don't know what to do with you. you know, so I had what was called bronchitis. Um, I'm pretty sure that would be called asthma these days. Um, so I had days off school when my breathing wasn't good and stuff. Um, 
and they had to keep me happy. So I'm the youngest of a big family, so my sisters and brothers, mainly my sisters who are kind of closest to me in age, were sent to party library uh, to get out a whole stream of books. And yeah, lying in bed, reading or sitting up uh, in a chair or whatever and reading all day long, yeah, quite early on I remember thinking, I'd love to do that. That must be brilliant to be able to just dream up these stories and have it published and other people putting your ideas inside your heads into other people's heads. I always liked the idea. I think I've always wanted to be a writer from a very early age. And I don't know if that ages you because I'm guessing if that happened to you now, then you would turn out to be a fantastic PlayStation gamer or something because I'm not sure if, if kids would necessarily frequent libraries or read as much as they would have done when we were younger. I think that's, I think that's a huge cultural change we've, we've gone through. There's a, there's a writer that I haven't seen for years but he's not got well in Spain, a guy called Bernardo Achaga, um, and uh, he's, he's talking once uh, and his son at that point was about 10 years of age and he went to uh, Pompeii to see the, the you know the, the museum there and all about the uh, the volcano and everything, and there there are the remains of um, people playing hopscotch um, in Pompeii in the year well, I don't know what year Pompeii the, the the volcano erupted, but you know in the ancient world, and Bernardo said you know I played that game too, but my son doesn't, so I've got more in common with a kid from 2,000 years ago. Yeah, it's quite sad, actually. It's amazing, actually. Yeah. You know? And to some extent, I think that's true. I think, actually, the culture's changed under our very eyes. Um, you're right, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, it doesn't make you wonder where the writers are going to come from in the future. Um, and it makes you wonder, worry a wee bit on a, on a kind of a class basis, too. You, you kind of end up, you kind of worry it's going to be very, very well-educated, well-off, the way it kind of used to be. And that kind of revolution, I think, that happened in the 20th century of ordinary people like you and me, you know, dead into right. I worry that's kind of going to go. A wee bit, you know, if, if, if kids, if our kids and kids like us as we were before aren't reading books, then who's going to write the books that we would want to read? Mm-hmm. It's taking a dark turn very quickly. That's like it's going to get worse than that. We'll, we'll, we'll take you. We'll take you back to to your childhood. The very first, it's the, the way the format is will be the same five questions to people and, and to get your, your favourite books and not-so-favourite books. So the first one is, what would your favourite book from childhood be? Uh, that's, that's an easy one for me. Uh, that, so I think about being a, a sick kid and I've got all these books brought to me. Uh, and I've got very, very uh, definite memories about, about two books in particular. Um, so I was getting all the Enid Blytons and the Mallory Towers and the, the you know all those kind of things. Um, and, and those are comics. Um, which I, which I also completely loved, uh, the Victor and all that, loved it all. Um, but somebody brought me, one of my sisters presumably, brought me back from the library, Treasure Island. I'm, I'm guessing I'd have been about nine or ten, and I just couldn't read it. It was just, it was just too complicated for me. Um, and also very, very dark, and I thought, what I could understand if I found really scary. Um, so I, I never finished that. Um, I mean, much later in life, I, I learned to love the book, but uh, I, I couldn't finish that book. Uh, and then about a year later, I'm guessing, some point later, our other sister brought me another book from the library, and it was another Robert Louis Stevenson, Mahar Sank. I thought, no, I can't read that guy, that guy's dead old-fashioned and, um, and looked dark. Uh, but it was kidnapped. And honestly, from, from page one, from the minute David Balfour steps out of his house to go on this journey, I was absolutely entranced by it. And it's, it's my go-back-to book. I, 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 re, uh, I reread it 
uh, every couple of years. I, I love everything about that book. I, just, I think it's funny. I think it's uh, moving. It's a great romp. It's a fantastic adventure. I love both Alan Brett Stewart, the, the, the character that David Butler meets up with, and I love David. Um, so I just love everything about that book. And I had the, the uh, I thought, a fantastic opportunity. I just love doing it. I, I, I adapted it for radio about two years ago. And that's probably, so much as I say I love writing novels most, that's one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my life, is try and adapt for radio what I think is still one of my favourite all-time books, and it changed my reading habits as a kid. When you were adapting the book, did that take you back, as you're, as you're sitting doing it, did that take you back to that wee guy that gets the, the library book from your sister? Totally. And it's nothing because, you know, you much later in life and you end up sort of doing this stuff for a living so you end up knowing quite a lot about Stevenson become a big Stevenson fan and a lot more about Scottish politics by then I just read it I knew nothing you know, David Balfour is you know a, a southern kind of you know it's written 100 years after the events and, and, and just after the Jacobite uh, Jacobite rebellion in 1745 I think it's set in 1752 or something um Ardenas, a kid, I didn't know any of that stuff. You know, I didn't know that David Balfour would have been a southern liberal Protestant and that Alan Brett Stewart was a kind of more conservative but wilder Gaelic-speaking uh, Catholic uh, Jacobite. None of that made it. One was mad and crazy and the other was more sensible. And that's all I knew. So you're right, I think what you're trying to do when you're trying to do that adaptation was try not to be too informed about it but try and find the magic that you loved about the book at the beginning uh, and, and, and not be kind of clever about it um, what I love is there's brilliant chapters in it when David Balfour is a great 17 year old um, uh, he goes in big strops he goes in, he goes, he goes in huge cream puffs for whole chapters we just won't talk to Alan Brecht Stewart which I always think is brilliant this, this southern uh, enlightened middle class kind of Protestant figure uh, who's, who's dead intelligent and you love and all that but he's such a moody wee beggar, you know. Uh, so I loved all that, and I remember loving that. The first time I'd seen the book, somebody kind of like me as a kid, you know, they used to go in big huffs like all of us did. I thought, that's brilliant, that's a whole chapter about a boy in a big huff. Fantastic, so I tried to do all that. And I suppose as well, as a, a Scottish writer, to have that sort of book that's held in such high regard, not just here, but throughout the world, is great as well, that we can produce and have produced and continue to produce great works of literature. Absolutely. Although, actually, I do worry that, uh, that Stevenson is not uh, as high up the register as he ought to be. Um, uh, it might sound uh, partisan, and maybe it is, but I am convinced as a number of writers, uh, I think, uh, that had they, they been born uh, 150 miles south, they would have been much bigger, much more on the canon, much more in every school, everywhere. Stevenson is much more lauded in, in Europe and in America, uh, where he is on school uh, curriculums, and certainly not in England, um, which I think is outrageous, because I think he's, he's absolutely up there for greatest writers in the English language. But yeah, yeah Scot- Scottish novels have always been really good, haven't they? We've always been good at that. Tell, tell, I'm telling Stevenson telling yarns, which is what he does. If I can take you on then... You're, you're... Just out of interest, because your first one ever, you know, what was your favourite childhood <coughs> book? It would be, it's a book called Master of Morgana by Alan Campbell MacLean. And it's a, it's a kind of adventure thriller set in the Isla Sky. And the reason I, I remember it because uh, the teacher used to read us a chapter every week in Primary 7, every Friday afternoon. And after about three or four weeks, I couldn't wait the following weeks. So I went straight down to the library 
got the book out, read it that weekend, and it was just the most amazing book. But stupidly, I went into school on the Monday and told the rest of the class and ruined the book for them. Told the story. Yeah. Spoilers included. And then, obviously, it was in the days of corporal punishment, so the teacher belted me for <laughs> Belted me for reading. Well, that's what I used to say, but actually, it was just for spoiling it for everyone else. But the book is it's still one of my... I do read that every now and again. Just And again, it takes you back to being at primary school and that absolute love of, of books. I mean, that's the great thing about your podcast, because that's what you want. You want other, I find that reviews or reading stuff in the papers or hearing stuff, it's very seldom I read a book because of that. It's because a friend of mine raves about a book and that's how you end up reading books. Um, so that's what I'm going to list. Right. Oh, good, good. Well, at least I've spread the word for <laughs> again. And, and if you tell everybody before it's finished, nobody's going to belt you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a bit worrying. If we go on from, from obviously from childhood, the next book would be your favourite book from what I've called either teenage university, kind of formative years when you start to really formulate your own kind of reading habits and reading style. Oh, th- so that thing, I'm a sick kid, and then it's, I get into books then, so I'm, I'm now a reader. And, and I was one of those teenagers who, I mean, I still did what most teenagers do, and you know, play football and all that, very, very badly, um, but all that. But, um, but I had my nose stuck in a book uh, for a lot of my, my teenage years. And I was quite, uh, I was quite schizophrenic about it, because uh, there's two writers spring to mind. Uh, one is uh, Thomas Hardy. And I can't tell you why, I suspect there was something like maybe again, a, a sick day or whatever, and there's a library book. My mum was, was an interesting reader. My mum, we never had books in the house, um, we used the library all the time. And my mum read all the time, and she was brilliant, because she just read whatever was in front of her. And it didn't matter what it was. So, I mean, my older brothers and sisters would be reading some, my older brothers reading, uh, I forget a guy's name, there was some writer uh, in the 60s and 70s who was quite, who was quite, uh, quite fruity. Um, it, was a, it was thrillers, but there was quite a lot of sexy scenes and risky scenes and stuff, which my mum was dead against, you know. She was a very, uh, very uh, pious woman, my mum. But she read them, and she would read Catherine Cookson, and she would read... Uh, horror books, whatever was around and somebody would just try it out, somebody later on in life would just stick a Dostoevsky <laughs> <laughs> and she would just, she read everything from beginning to end and at the end of every book she had two responses, nah it wasn't very good or that was good <laughs> no matter what it was <laughs> and I think maybe I was a wee bit of that too actually I quite, I like that you know? um, so I don't know where the, the hard days started, um, you know what it might, it might actually from being from seeing a film, it might be from seeing the film of Far From the Magic Crowd. I don't know, but I was going to Hardy, and uh, and I just loved Hardy. But at the same time, and another bit of my brain, um, I discovered through being a big music fan, I'd got into Bob Dylan and uh, that kind of whole early 60s scene, 10 years older than me or more. Uh, but I got into all that stuff. Um, and the beat generation. Um, so for about five years of my life, and I thought it less than that, I thought about three years, I was just obsessed with Jack Kerouac and Alan Ginsberg. Upstairs in my, my, my upstairs bedroom where I write from, I've still got a lot of first and second editions. I've, I've, for a while, also looked them out whenever I could find a good edition of the Dharma Bums or uh, Howl or Caddish or whatever. All these books, I just completely was obsessed. And it was me and a couple of guys at school. I mean, we'd all read these books and then talk about them the next day. So I would say, actually, if I had to choose one book that really made an enormous impact on me, and uh, uh, it would be On the Road. Um, um, I'm not sure I liked it. I just <laughs> liked the idea of it. So it, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of 
just quite funky, wasn't this idea, this guy, and he just bums around America and the music and all that. It was one of those books as well, because we're going to come back to it again later in the podcast, it was one of those books that you kind of, of a certain period and a certain age, you felt you had to read it. I was like that too. I was, I was, a, I was probably a pain in the backside, I guess I probably was. Um, the ones I remember even more of that was I remember reading, and very publicly reading, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, so I would sit and read Nausea and it was at the Rose to Freedom. Um, I had no clue what any of this meant. You know, I'm not even sure I was properly reading them. I was looking at like the words were passing in front of my eyes, but there was something about, oh yeah, yeah, I'm now 15 years of age, I'm going, I'm going to read Jean Paul Sartre. I have no clue what any of that was about. So I think maybe the beats, beats not quite so much for me. I think the beats became more famous generally before, obviously, when they were actually around writing in the 1950s and the early 60s. And it seemed to me later on that they went back into fashion. At the time, they weren't particularly. Yeah. And I, again, I'm not entirely sure. I think it was just through, like, in Dylan and Donovan and that kind of uh, 60s music that I, I'd heard the names uh, so about them, about the Beat Generation. Um, I think also maybe it was my pal Mick, and he had older brothers who were, who were just groovier than my brothers were. Uh, my brothers were into Elvis <laughs> and the Beatles and stuff like that. They were into the funky stuff. That's um, real 1970s vocabulary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been trying not to use it. It's now in my head. Um, so maybe them. I don't know where it first started, um, but the, it actually wasn't seen at the time as like a must read book. That was that was later on. Um, the, the time, no, it just seemed to me actually. It just seemed to be really, really exciting. Is this this all? And I was determined. That's what I was going to do. I was going to become. A, I was going to bum about America and go to jazz clubs and. Take, take illegal illegal substances. Yeah. <laughs> None of which happened. Yeah, still on your bucket list. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. interesting when you because you mentioned earlier on uh, Treasure Island, and then you, you talk about that book all its time. That I think it's only as you get older you realise that you know certain books at a certain period in, in your life they either you can either take to them or, or not. So in one respect, you read on the road when you're younger and you really embrace it. Maybe not so much when you're older, and vice versa with Treasure Island you maybe struggle at the time but then you go back to it and then you realise what a brilliant book it is absolutely and also funny when you asked me to do this there are books that you think you know um, I loved at the time but I wouldn't like it now or books that you know uh, books that you think you don't like but then at some point in five years time you, I find a lot about I used to review um, for when I first started writing I used to review for various papers I used to always worry about you could go and see a film or a play and you'd hate it that night, but quite potentially you'd go the following week, and that's just been a different mood, it's a slight different performance or whatever, and I actually like it. You know? So I'm never completely set. There's a lot of stuff I think I really like. I can, you know, there's lots of stuff I've read in the past which I thought was great then, and I don't like anymore. And there's presumably lots of stuff I didn't like, and that one day I'll end up reading by accident and go, God, why did I always slag that book off? That's actually a great book. I'm never convinced about my own, my own opinions. I think they change all the time. <laughs> What's yours? What was your uh, teenage book? Catch-22. Was it? Yeah, we got it. I, I remember the, the teacher in, in high school, fifth year, gave, it was strange, he gave the boys uh, Catch-22 to study and he gave the girls Sons and Lovers. And so I think the girls really struggled with that. And not, and he, a group of, which I thought was genius, a group of 16-year-old boys who would sit there just laughing for, for a whole hour of the class reading and getting them to read. And I loved the book so much that at the end of fifth year, I stole my copy from the book, I still, from the school, and I still have it. So, wasn't that interesting? Because I would say, by and large, we kind of quite often agree on a lot of books and music and stuff like that. Um, that was one I considered from my, 
I'll book another one to again. There's two of them, so I get a thick I'm not sure if we'd have done the podcast if I'd seen that, your choice. If I had to cancel now, you know. Uh, it would have been it. Um, there's two books about that time. They're both kind of seen as being teen books and kind of, you know, young guy books. The other one I get, I never got really. And I used to pretend that I did, was uh, Catch in the Rye. Was Catch in the Rye you said there? Uh, no, Catch 22. Catch 22, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Catch 22 and Catch in the Rye. Both of them I used to pretend I liked. But I was like, I couldn't, I never found Catch 22 funny. And I just hated Holden Caulfield. And uh, Catch 22. So whether I read them a wee bit too early, I think I may have read them a wee bit too late, actually, I think. I was so busy <laughs> faffing about pretending to read Jean-Paul Sartre. <laughs> the time was when I should have been reading those books. So the time I got into reading those books, I think if you're not a grumpy teenager, those books don't make any sense. And I think I didn't read them until my late teens or early 20s, and I, I, I just didn't get them. Yeah, I must admit, I did like both of them, but I, I read them, I think, when I was... At the right time. Mid, mid to late Which teens. Which is not as well. It depends when you read a book. But certain books... Of course, it's Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. If you haven't read about 17, you're going to hate it. If you've read it before 17, you'll love it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's a scientific test you could take. Because um, I think if you can get through that time and all that magic, by the time you're 17, 18, if you've never come across it before, it doesn't make any sense to you. Listen to the Read All About It podcast with my guest Chris Dolan, the writer, and we're now on to your third choice. It's a book you'd recommend to anyone, and not only are you going to recommend this book, I think you're going to give us a wee lesson in, in Spanish and English pronunciation. <laughs> Absolutely. The book in Spanish is called Don Quixote, and in English it's Don Quixot. So you get the, the, the adjective Quixotic from that. Um, I don't know why I went to an X, I suppose that G, a Jota sound. The nearest thing you can get is an X sound in English. And that, that must sound quite poncy to, to say Don Quixote is my favourite book. Because if you haven't read Don Quixote, then I think it's a bit like saying my favourite book is you know, Ulysses or, or, uh, or, I don't know, um, Proust or something. But I think, I think if you haven't read it, honestly, read it. You know? It is genuinely funny. You remember going to plays, uh, Shakespeare plays with teachers? Uh, at school some comedy or other and there'd be a, a Shakespearean joke where the teacher go <laughs> and you go well that's just not funny it might be funny 400 years ago but it's not funny now. and you're not actually entertained you're just trying to show off Quixote is genuinely funny and it is honestly 400 and whatever more years it is later it is still because part of it's just slapstick you know? and Don Quixote fights windmills you know? and you know, tossing pantry up and down and blankets and it's just hilarious, the whole idea. Um, I think it's just one of the best ideas for a book. In a way, I think it underpins every, every, every book ever written since then. The idea that, and it's exactly what we're doing here, Don Quixote is a guy who loves books. He loves books so much he thinks he's living in one. You know, and he ends up just creating this mad world around about him. And you just love him for it. I mean, he's nuts. But he causes terrible damage all over the place. Um, and Sancho Panta, your heart breaks for half the time. But the two of them are just, they're just the original kind of, they're, they're more common wise, you know. They're, uh, they're, um, I, have to, I have to confess that I've actually never read it. No, I think, I, honestly, I think most people haven't, you know. Because I think there's that thing about it, it looks huge, um, it's ancient, and it's a great classic. So I think a lot of people go, you know, yeah, yeah, one day, you know, and they never do. And I would urge people to try, and also there are two books. 
So you don't have to read the whole thing. There are two books that nearly always these days published together. I think it's a shame. I think they published them separately. They were published ten years separately. Um, I think even more than that uh, when Cervantes wrote them. Uh, and he only wrote the second one because somebody else wrote a false... It's like doing Harry Potter and because you don't produce number two, somebody else cashes in and produces a second Harry Potter. So somebody did this and, and uh, John Quick says. Uh, and that's what annoys Cervantes so much that he decided, well, no, I'm going to write my own second part. And the first part is, is kind of fairly straightforward romp across Spain. So journey across Spain, it's hilarious. Um, the second part starts off that way, but then actually it becomes, I think it's also as well, it's been one of the funniest books ever written. Um, it's also one of the saddest. The last chapter of Don Quixote, you know, what's that thing that Oscar Wilde said, you know, if you can read the death of, it's not Little Nell, is it? Uh, it's one of Dickens' characters. If you can read the death of this young girl and not burst out laughing, there's something wrong with you. Uh, <laughs> but it's not that, it's genuinely sad. It really is. It's one of the saddest endings. When he, when he comes to his senses and he realises it's, it's not true, you know, uh, and he's back to the normal, mundane, boring world. Uh, and you just feel so much for him. Um, so honestly, I would say it's, it's a brilliant... The other thing that's great about Quixote is the novel's now set and now you definitely have to stay in one story all the way through. But actually, back then, because Cervantes was making the form up, he was just writing stuff. I don't think he even had the word novel for it back then. Um, so quite often it just goes off into a short story. It's got nothing to do with Don Quixote or Sancho Panza. It's just got a totally different story altogether and they're usually really good. So I love that about it too. If you get a wee bit bored then, you just go and see what these two people are doing over here and you get a wee short story in the middle of it. So it's a real kind of cornucopia of just stuff and ideas and, and there's kind of sad stories and funny stories and political stories and oh, it's just great. You know? it's, a, it's a great book and I, I think more people should try it. And I mentioned, I touched on it in the introduction of the fact that you write in English and Spanish. I know Spain is very close to your heart as well. And how, how do you find that in terms of, of are there different challenges when you're writing in a different language? I mean, I think you, you, you shouldn't ever really uh, originate in your second language um, unless you're completely bilingual. And that's, and that's mainly people who are actually brought up with two languages. Um, they always say you're writing your own language, your first language. Uh, I've never really uh, originated, I've translated. And I've helped with my own translations. Um, and I've written bits and pieces, short things in Spanish. Um, but no, I, don't, I would always originate in English. Um, the, 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 the plays you referred to in the beginning, uh, the introduction there, uh, were written with students of mine in Pamplona. Um, so yeah, there are there's bits in there that I wrote in Spanish because I was in Spain working with the writers and we're writing together. Um, and there's parts of that I contributed in Spanish, which is great fun to do. I loved it. And in my own translation of my play, Sabina, I, I got quite involved in the translation of it. Um, so that was great too. But no, I think, uh, I think although my Spanish is, is pretty fluent, it's, it's not good enough to be inventive in. And I mentioned as well about this epic cycling trek that you, you took part in with a couple of your friends. and. It wasn't just the fact that obviously you're a, you're a big cyclist and that, that in itself would have been appealing, but it's part of a writing project that you're involved in as well. Yeah, I mean, the childhood books that were just, you know, we've been taught this before, that, you know, ask me tomorrow, have the same interview again tomorrow, and I'll ask you, you'll ask me all five entirely different books. You know? So one of the ones I consider for this is, is Laurie Lee as my childhood book. can't remember what age I was exactly, Side of a Rosie, I'm going to guess about 11, 12 again. I remember completely loving Side of a Rosie in this, this idyllic village. And, and also for that, it was actually quite a sexy book. Um, so I remember the 11 or 12 women. Um, I wish I lived there. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and then uh, I ended up going to Spain, basically me and my pal Brendan uh, had flunked all our hires. We are both kind of younger, he's not the youngest in his family, but we are younger than uh, the family and all our brothers have done very well. And we knew we were going to terrible hire results, we said we better get out of here. And Brennan had a brother who lived in uh, Vigo in Spain, on La Coruña in the north of Spain. So which way around it was, I can't remember. Whether I knew that we are going to go there and go away for the whole summer, until after the exam results come out. Um, and then read Laurie Lee's follow-up to Cycle Rosie, which is as I walked out one midsummer morning when he goes across Spain just at the beginning of the, the Spanish Civil War, before the year before it starts, and he busks his way across Spain playing fiddle. I play fiddle as well, and I was playing fiddle by then. I played in the school's orchestras and had a wee, a wee band, my pal Tommy and stuff like that, so I played quite a lot of fiddle. Um, or whether I really read it, and decided, well, this is an opportunity. Then at the age of 16, I decided I was going to go with Brendan and then I was going to do Laurie Lee. I was going to go off with my fiddle and uh, do the exact same route as Laurie Lee. Uh, it would have been great if I'd done it, by the way, because I would have ended up just the time Franco died. So it would have been the end of the process uh, that Laurie Lee started in 1935 into 1936, when Franco came to power. Um, but I didn't manage. I was too young. Uh, I managed about, about six weeks or so, uh, but basically scared and you know, not really sure of what I was doing and stuff like that and I ran out of confidence uh, and my brother had to repatriate me, he had to organise my repatriation which has always been a family hilarity ever since you know. um, but then at the, so I was 16 then at the age of 61 last year we decided, I decided I'm going to try it again um, except I couldn't, can't take a year away I've got a sponsor, has got a job, blah 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 uh, so I said, cycle, I do a lot of cycling I have two pals, a cycler of Spain were on different uh, Spanish journeys for years together, we're all Spanish speakers. And they said they'd come with me to put in an extra element that cycle from Vigo to Valencia, so, so northwest to southeast um, of Spain. Uh, and then I would pick up Lori Lee later on. So I did that, so it was absolutely brilliant. I loved your instruction, I'd just leave it in there, nearly a thousand miles. It's actually 750 miles. Uh, 700, and it was, it was 12,000 kilometres. So it's about 780 miles somewhere altogether. Um, so it was brilliant. I know it just cycled across Spain, but we were, we were busking. So I'm fiddle, and Liam had his ukulele, and Eddie was the easiest for uh, cycling. He just had a penny whistle. Uh, so we were all jealous of him. Cause try, I had to have the fiddle on my back the entire 780 miles, which at times was a real, a real bugger. Um, but it was brilliant. So every time we stopped in places, we get the instruments out, we play, and then we talk to people. And we try to talk about their memories and about songs and stuff. So. It was fantastic. We had a wee blog as we went along. Uh, I'm now writing a book about it. Uh, and it's not just that journey, but about my whole uh, relationship with Spain, which is uh, um, you know, ever since that sixty years of age and I speak Spanish. And, and that's due to come out May 2020? Somewhere right about yeah. then, yeah. yeah. Um, depends how quickly I can get the next draft in. So we're still on track for May 2020, but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll still get there. And you're also... There's going to be a podcast based around it as well from all your recordings. Yeah, so we've done the recordings obviously when we were there uh, and I've written most of the scripts so um, we're going to record I think in December and then they go out sometime December, January and then they go out February, March on uh, Janice Versailles' new platform uh, called The Big Light. Um, so it's Janice that we're doing it with. Um, so yeah, yeah, look forward to that too. Excellent, something to look forward yeah. to next year. Yeah. Now, Just about what, what was your... Uh, um, the most important was what's the actual title called? A book, a book I'd recommend, recommend to anyone. anyone yeah. I think if I'm, I'm, if I'm sticking with a, a Scottish 
theme, it would be the cone gatherers. Oh, God, yeah. For, for me. Um, I never, it, it was always a bugbear of mine that we didn't really get a lot of Scottish literature at school. And I was working at the time, and a guy that started working with us, he's now a, actually an SNP MP, Brendan O'Hara, and he'd recommended it, just said he loved the book, and I, I read it, and I just... It's also famous for being the book that every writer, Timmy Hunter, because they do both prose and drama, um, that every writer has tried to turn into a film, and nobody's ever managed to do it. Well, there was a stage play maybe yeah. a couple of years ago at yeah. Citizens, which yeah. was... There's been a couple of stage productions, but there's been no film of it, which I think is ridiculous, because it's so filmic. Mm-hmm. The stage productions are good, but even when you watch the stage productions, you're thinking, that'd make an even better film. Absolutely. And it's still never happened. So if there's any film producers and directors listening Absolutely, out I'm there. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have one more attempt. When I was sending you the, the five questions, and what was really interesting is the next question is a book you couldn't be paid to read again. And originally, out of all the selections, there was a whole screen of, of books. I don't know if that says <laughs> the books that you hate stick in your mind. <laughs> Yeah, so it's the one house that I did spend most time thinking about. Um, so yes, I've got, it's funny. It's one thing about what you would pay to read again, which because there's two interpretations of that. Now, one is you just thought it was so terrible, you know, that you would never recommend them or ever read it again. But there's another way of looking at that, and that is, I'm glad I have read it. It's a bit like you know, doing a really long walk up Ben Nevis on a bad day. You know, you're glad you've finished it. You're glad you've done it and you feel better for having done it, but you'll never do it again unless it's a, a decent day or whatever. So, on the road. <laughs> Which again goes back to what you were saying about of its time and of your time. So. I'm glad I've read it. Um, and I would never, ever, ever read it again. Yeah. Um, and then I actually, actually Have you did, tried reading it again? Once or twice, yeah. Once or twice. Um just out of interest, but almost just to, to completely confirm um, the idea that I know I won't, I won't, I can't get through this stuff. I don't even get further than about 10 or 15 pages into it um, since then. So yeah, there's that kind of book, which you've loved at a certain point and you're glad you've read, but you'll never ever read again. I've got loads of those, there's quite a lot of books. Um, I'm trying to do one just now, actually, I'm trying to read... So this is one of this is one of these books that everybody thinks you ought to read. I've got a list of those. I mean, the gaps in my knowledge are huge. I'm supposed to be a writer. There's lots of important books I've never read. And one of the most famous ones is Moby Dick. I'm only about 40 pages in, but I think it may well be. Already <laughs> so, if we, so if we redo the podcast, it could be... <laughs> exactly. It could be it's Moby Dick. I've got every page is a nightmare. Um, it's so hard to read. Um, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of keeping going with it for a while yet, and I might change my mind. Um... But that, that did come to, to my mind just in the middle of reading it. But no, if I had to choose one, and I say I've got, I've got lots, you know, Finnegan's Wake and all these kind of books, books are almost impossible, I think. Um, but I did uh, the Camino Santiago. I've done it a couple of times now. I walked it with my brother and his friends um, in the year 2000. Um, and that was a fantastic experience. Uh, and I've cycled it since with my two cycling uh, pals. Uh, so I'm really into the Camino. And I've read everything on the Camino. And uh, uh, one of my favourite books of all time is uh, the, the original travel guide, probably the earliest travel guide ever written, uh, the Liber Santo Jacobi, which is a, a pilgrim's guide to the to the uh, the Camino, uh, written in the 11th century, uh, and it's absolutely hilarious. And it's also actually still quite useful a thousand years later, and actually he's quite right about a whole number of things you know, mm-hmm. that haven't changed. But there's also a lot of absolute utter gut rots being written, written about the Camino. I say the majority of books written about the Camino are absolutely appalling. Shirley MacLaine's 
is just, I can't what it's called, but it's completely nuts. It's got a, it's like it doesn't become one of my worst books ever because at least it's funny. Probably not intentionally, but it is actually <laughs> funny. Yeah. But the one I really, really disliked, and actually more than just didn't think it was good or accurate or whatever, I really actually found myself you know, repelled by it, is Paolo Coelho's The Pilgrimage. I just, I hate the entire idea of it. He goes, and he never tells you who it is he's with, he goes with somebody he calls the maestro. And he never tells you this, but he's travelling with the maestro. I suspect it's probably just him. Um, the only maestro I know is Paul McStay, the Celtic player. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, but Paul McStay, that would be a better book. But this guy, I'll just give you one incident from it, tells you why I really hate it. He, Coelho, and the maestro, are going through a town which we went through, and kind of an ordinary, quite kind of poor little town um, in Galicia. Um, and so I'm reading this chapter as, as we're actually going through this town. And he says, as he come into the town, they're walking. So as they walk into town, there's a young boy, an unattractive young boy and unattractively dressed. He's just unattractive and they're out him. Uh, and he's kicking a ball against a wall. And the maestro turns round to Coelho and he says... That boy is not a boy. That boy is your personal demon. And the ball he's kicking against the wall is not a ball. He says, it is your world. He is kicking your world. You must take your world and own it yourself. So Paolo Coelho goes up and steals his boy's ball. <laughs> and walks away there. And as the boy cries and shouts at him, this is proof that he's some kind of personal demon. And you just think... So I'm like, you can't swear on this. But honestly, you think... What? That's outrageous. Uh, and I, I dislike... I don't get Quillio. Uh, I've, I've tried The Alchemist. I've tried a couple of other things. I don't get it. Uh, I don't... If I do get it at all, I don't like it. I think he's... I think he's peddling snake oil. Uh, I, just, I just don't like what he's, what he's about. Weirdly, I once saw him speak in uh, the Edinburgh Festival and I, I happened to be getting to a book that year myself so I was in the green room. And I thought he was actually great speaking. I was listening to him and God, you know, it's really interesting me. I've got to read you again. I may have got this wrong. And I kind of very briefly met him in the green room and he seemed a really, really charming Maybe you should man. just listen to the audio book. <laughs> Maybe that would work. Maybe that would work. <laughs> Except I didn't go back and try again. I thought, no, he really is a snake oil salesman. He's really good at that. You know, he knows how to sell you stuff. Um, I've nothing against the man himself. I know virtually nothing about him, but I honestly thought, if that doesn't put you off the Camino of this book, and if that doesn't fundamentally misunderstand what the Camino's about, which I think is the exact opposite, it's about, it's about celebrating young boys kicking a, a ball against a wall. It's about celebrating meeting people and getting to know new places. Whereas that book seems to me, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a mean-spirited book. Um, and I'm, I just hate it. And I had to, I kind of had to read it because I was doing the Camino and I wanted to do it. And I kind of, I was, I was completely compelled by how much I hated every line in it. I also think he's a terrible writer. He's one of these writers that tries to make every line do something which he thinks is poetic and I just think it's clunky. Uh, so I, don't know, I, don't, I just don't get him. Um, and, and that's his worst book. Okay. <laughs> is, is that perfect? That, that, that is, that's pretty <laughs> definitive. Given that you've asked me uh, my choices from the other yeah. ones, the, the ones that stick in my it's hard actually I'd have to sit and think really about books I hated but I remember at the time a few years ago I, I, I did a book read all about it which was a year of trying to Great read, book. Yeah, read more it. literature yeah. and one month I was reading trilogies so I read Roddy Doyle trilogy the one that's, that's based early 20th century 
Dublin, A Star Called Henry, which is a great book. But then the next two books in that, I'll play that thing, and The Dead Republic. And I read them just because I had to, I was doing it as part of the project, but I, as somebody who loved Roddy, who loves Roddy Doyle, I found them just, it was horrible. It was a horrible experience, and it was like, you know, that way you kind of almost skipping the pages. Yeah. You're pouring over the world just to say you've finished it, but actually it was... Is that partly because you read, I'd read them in sequence? Or had you been reading the Barrytown trilogy and then... No, the... no, I read, because it was three different... So there was a Cormac McCarthy trilogy, So and, and I can't remember who the third writer was, but I, I would read one of each. So I'd read one Cormac McCarthy, and then Roddy Doyle, and then the other one, and then go back. So I wasn't reading them back to back. Yeah. I just thought from the, the high of one, the other two, yeah. and it was almost like... It just... It just really jarred with me and I was quite surprised because I'd, I'd loved just about everything that Roddy Doyle was written. In fact, you told me that at the time when I read the book. Um, so again, that influence of other people. So like you, I've, I've loved Roddy Doyle and I love the Barrytown trilogy and everything else. I've, 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 uh, the woman who walked into doors and uh, what's, what's the one about the wee boy? And, uh, Paddy Clark. Paddy Clark. Uh, love all that. But because of that, I've never read those <laughs> And I suspect I never The will. first one, definitely, I still called Henry, is definitely worth, worth reading. But the the fifth and final choice or the fin- final question, and the question is either the last book you read or the book that you're currently reading. The one that, well, I'm going to cheat. The one that, that uh, I'm currently reading is Moby Dick, so it may well become my most hated book uh, very very soon. I don't know, or the opposite. I may decide halfway through. God, it's actually wonderful, uh, but it's certainly killing me at the moment. The, the one I said it is, I'm, like, I don't know if you're the same. I'm, I'm very bad for reading four or five books at the same time. But I've also got one book that I've been reading almost on a daily basis uh, for, I would say now, about 15 years that I just read and reread and go back and read over and over again. Uh, and it's Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head, which takes each Beatles song uh, and just precision kind of, uh, through a microscope, looks at every element of it. And can I just say, just in terms of the setting of the podcast, because we're actually we're doing this in your house, and actually just... Because to just to let people know this is absolutely true, in your bathroom and there's a wee kind of book rack, that book is in the, in the book rack, along with uh, the, my copy of uh, the Brendan Rogers autobiography, which I wrote, so I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a case of being on a toilet paper. Yeah, I keep reading those too, actually. That's, uh, uh, in fact, before that, um, did, a book you gave me, The Beautiful Game, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but Brazil, football, for a long yeah. time. Uh, Brazil 1970. Yeah. So that's yeah. why, and I'm sure your listeners don't want to know this, but that's why I still read it every day, and just for short periods at a time. But the, the, it's interesting, the Beatles, but I've, I have a theory about uh, music, just about, it's, it's a very, very coarse theory. Like, if somebody says to me they don't like the Beatles, A, I think they're lying, because it, it's impossible not to like that whole canon, or B, their ears are painted on. Because you said to me years ago, I'd never heard that expression before. I love that expression. I use it all the time. And and that book kind of for me crystallises that just the, the genius of what they did. Yeah. And something about it too funny because I'm about reading that. Also, I must have read it. God knows how many times. Um, and it's not even just about. So it's got, it's got, it does so many things. You know, first go backlist every song. Sure. I mean, just tiny things like um, it tells you that in a minute one. Uh, 136 uh, on, I don't know, I Want to Hold Your Hand or something like that, there is a breakthrough from the previous version of it and you can hear uh, John Lennon's signature, which I think before with the old record plays we had when we first, when we first had these uh, albums in the house because the Beatles, you know, are the soundtrack to my life, you know, I was 
born in the very late fifties, so I mean, as I was growing up, the Beatles just everywhere. Um, and I don't think you can hear those kind of things. But now with the earphones and all that, we can hear actually tiny things. Like, oh, God, so you do. You can hear Joe Lennon singing the wrong note. To the, you know, and just lots of little, just fascinating things like that. But it goes into the chord structure. Uh, you and I both play guitar, uh, so it was fascinating. You know, the, the chord structure and all of that. It goes into the lyrics where they came from. But it's also, also like minor essays on the time about you know what was happening at the time politically, what was happening culturally. Is I don't know. In fact, I don't agree a lot of the time with Ian McDonald. Uh, friend of mine, a guy I've mentioned before, as the bass writer, uh, Bernardo, once said to me, he says he increasingly finds as he goes older that he needs a book with a pencil in his hand. He says because a book is a conversation. It's not a one-way uh, monologue. He says you're having a conversation with the writer, and I'll argue with Ian McDonald on almost every song and lots and lots of stuff because I think yeah, I just disagree with him. That must be part of the enjoyment of the book. Though. Absolutely, yeah, I love that because you don't disagree so fundamentally. He's talking absolute nonsense. You know, the guy obviously knows a lot more than I do. But you know, you'd want I'd want to go out for a pint with him and say, "Why did you say? Because I think that's a great song," um, or "Why do you think he thought that?" Because I don't think he did. So it's got that element to it. I think it's kind of conversational. It's kind of got just just it's just a cornucopia. It's the same to use that word uh, of ideas and stuff I, I love books like that uh, and the, the introductory essays are, are brilliant on music of the 60s and the 70s and the influence of the Beatles and, and how who they were influenced by from the 40s and 50s it's just brilliant it's just there's so much in it um, it's one of those books I, I quite often give to people as birthday presents or uh, Christmas presents um, and it's uh, and, and, and there's a good excuse then to go back and listen to the Beatles again and if you're listening to this podcast and you are sitting there saying, I'm one of those people who don't like the Beatles, we don't believe you. Exactly. And if, and if it's true, we don't want to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, we've come to the end of this podcast, Chris. Uh, Sorry, last, last question for you. What's, uh, what's the book you're reading now? I'm reading, I'm reading a book called Troubles by uh, an author called J.G. Farrell. Um, in the process, it's a kind of just a reading project. I'm, I'm trying to work my way through all the Booker Prize winners. Oh, yeah. So that was the one for 90... It was awarded... The prize wasn't awarded for that novel until 2010 because the original rules, I think, were it was books published the previous year. So books in 1970, for some reason, fell between the, the cracks of, of that award. So then they retrospectively uh, awarded it. So that's the, the third of the, the 55 books I'm kind of working my way through. So, um. yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's kind of set just... Sort of, Island post First World War. It's kind of slightly, slightly ealing farce type thing, mm-hmm. but it's set around about the backdrop of the post First World War and, and what's happening in Ireland with the War of Independence. So it's, it's a that's really a good, good book. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it saves me having to do a podcast interview myself now. Okay, I think at the very end, when you finally finish, hopefully in ten years' time, and you decide to wrap up this and not go to see the hundred and six of your podcast. Something has to do properly with you. Yeah, and I'll, I'll sit down and, and, and see, what, see what my list is. <laughs> It'll be huge at that point. Um, but, see, anybody, anybody who's listening, if you go onto my website, www.paulcardahey.com, you'll be able to get a list of all the books that we've been talking about today. But um, for now, Chris, thanks for being, as I said at the start, my Neil Armstrong for the Read All About It podcast. <laughs> a great leap was taken. That was brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyed it, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. 
If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>